The following program may contain language that is explicit, and by explicit, I mean implicitly naughty words. It's Wednesday, May 20th, 2020. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca, and I am not doing the hydroxychloroquine thing again. Nope, not going to do it, not debating it. I'm shutting myself off to that topic as a sort of uh, prophylaxis, shall we say. So 49-year-old Mississippi judge Corey Wilson, old for Corey, is up for a promotion. Donald Trump has nominated the former state representative and editorialist and current Mississippi Court of Appeals judge to serve on the U.S. Fifth Circuit. That's the one right below the Supreme Court. In his op-ed writing days, Wilson described the Obama administration's efforts to advance the Affordable Care Act as ramming a freedom-infringing mess down our throats, called Hillary Clinton a criminal, all the greatest hits, really. But the biggest sticking point among Democrats on the Senate Judiciary Committee was Wilson's hostility to protecting voting rights. So he wrote in a 2013 op-ed that the government, quote, might spend less time chasing agendas that aren't there and more time investigating the voter fraud and other irregularities. Yet when states looked into these instances of voting fraud and irregularities and found nothing, Wilson was dismissive. So here was Senator Dick Durbin of Illinois mentioning how Ohio and Florida passed strict voter ID laws on the premise that voter fraud was running amok. But it turns out that voter fraud was non-existent. The senator then confronted Wilson with his own opinions. Tell me of the cases of fraud that led to this. And in both states, in both instances, there were none. None. And yet when it came time for you to take a look at my effort and degrade it, you called it a show trial. But there was no substance to it, I guess. Is that what that means? So would you like to comment today about why calling election officials under oath and asking them the incidents of voter fraud was some kind of a show trial? Senator, respectfully, as a sitting judge, I can't, I can't comment because of the canons and the code of conduct oh, on come political... On. But he would not. Come on. Yes. While those were my opinions as a writer and my speeches as a state representative, now you see I am a judge. And a judge is, legal term, a different breed of cat. Sheldon Whitehouse, Democrat of Rhode Island, tried a similar tack. You said that Attorney General Holder, and I'm quoting you here, whined that voter ID laws are part of an illegitimate orchestrated effort by Republicans to suppress poor and minority voting. How do you know that voter ID laws are not part of an illegitimate orchestrated effort by Republicans? Judge Wilson, just ignoring the verb whine, answered that voting rights are very important to him. Oh, yes, they are. And on it went. He's been a judge in Mississippi for 15 months, but that 15 months has been something of a cleansing or renewal that makes all his previous stated opinions in his previous 46 years of life totally irrelevant. He doesn't have to answer for anything he ever wrote or thought before putting on the robes because those garments confer both solemnity and amnesia. They're a form of purification. It's all ridiculous, of course, but it's quite convenient. So I was struck by one thing that Richard Blumenthal, Democrat of Connecticut, said. I think you're nomination is really unfortunate and in many ways indefensible, Judge. It isn't that uh, I disagree with you. 
I do on many of the positions that you have taken. You've called marriage equality a fringe idea. You've spoken out against women's reproductive rights. You've supported positions that would involve voting suppression. But on this issue of the Affordable Care Act, what's really unfortunate and indefensible is your nomination in the midst of a public health crisis. Cosign, first of all, but that's not why I played the clip. I ask you this. Just imagine in nine months' time, Richard Blumenthal is nominated by a Democratic president to serve on the Supreme Court, or it could be a district court. Do you think that every one of the Republicans on the Judiciary Committee wouldn't ask him about the sentiment he just expressed? Wouldn't ask him about votes he has taken and things that he said in public life as a senator? And if Blumenthal answered, you know, that doesn't matter because that was Senator Blumenthal and that's not the justice that I'll become, it's just kind of ridiculous. And this isn't just a pox on Republicans. Both sides certainly would probe past statements for an indication of how a judge thinks, and that's right and proper. Republicans now are the ones who have to pretend it's not. And they're furthering this fiction that you get to don the robes and therefore jettison one's past. It's a kind of born-again judiciality. Amen. On the show today, a helpful tool to aid the next Allison Roman in not becoming the last Allison Roman, because the current Allison Roman just might be the last Allison Roman. But first... During the current health crisis, over and over on this program, we generally bemoan all those useful preventative measures in fighting the virus that are discounted or ignored or lied about. Things like distancing, masks, shutdowns, they work, but people will tell you they don't. But you know, that's not actually the usual problem in this country. The usual problem is basically the opposite. Americans love cures that don't cure. In fact, they might even hurt us. And yes, I'm still ixnaying on the hydroxychloroquine hay, but what I'm talking about more are the treatments tackled by my next guest, Dr. Paul Offit, who is Director of Vaccine Education at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. He has written a book called Overkill, When Modern Medicine Goes Too Far. Paul Offit, up next. A corollary to the Nietzschean quote that what doesn't kill one makes one stronger should be something like this. Often, what's said to cure you makes you weaker. Now, that is true with folk remedies and remedies of the past, but it's very prevalent today. This is the subject of a new book by Dr. Paul Offit, Overkill, When Modern Medicine Goes Too Far. He is the professor of pediatrics in the Division of Infectious Diseases and the director of the Vaccine Education Center at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. What a great guy to talk to at this time. Hello, Dr. Offit. Thanks for joining me. Thank, thanks for having me. Is the problem that we take many, well, one problem is when medicine doesn't work and another problem is when taking that, ingesting that medicine could actually harm you. What's more frequent in, um, in the examples in Overkill? I think taking medicines or doing therapies or screening programs that do more harm than good. 
And so this was a book after my own heart because, I mean, just reading through the vitamin D section, there are subheads and they just list vitamin D doesn't treat cancer. Vitamin D doesn't prevent cancer. Vitamin D doesn't prevent stroke or heart disease. Vitamin D doesn't prevent coughs, colds, or sore throat. Vitamin D doesn't prevent a variety of other diseases. Vitamin D doesn't prevent fractures. Wow. Vitamin D doesn't do anything. Right. It doesn't. It just makes for a lot of expensive urine. Oh, God. Well, I want to say at some point I get the point. I I think a lot of people don't get the point. Exactly right. I mean, marketing defeats science every time. People are looking for that magic medicine. And and in this book, I go through a lot of putative magic medicines that aren't magic medicines at all. Vitamin D, testosterone, and a variety of others just aren't what they're marketed to be. But it's really hard to, uh, you know, to sort of convince people when they're looking for something magical to tell them that it's really not. Yeah, now I understand if what we're talking about is, you know, someone has a dire um, prognosis and there's no cure, so they might reach for something that's untested or maybe even, you know, uh, magical. But with testosterone, a lot of the problem is like the kid is short. And with vitamin D, it's the potential for a problem, not even a problem that is necessarily even presenting itself that causes people to latch on to something like vitamin D. Right. And it's not it's not a problem at all. You're right. I mean, it's for vitamin D. People are just looking for that thing that offers them better health. And the word vitamin is always a winner. Right. Vita from the Latin life. And we certainly need vitamins. I mean, vitamins are necessary to convert food to energy and a variety of other uh, processes, metabolic processes in the body. But but taking them as as a pill that that is is it would mean you're ingesting far more than you ever would typically ingest is not a natural act. I mean, people have colds; they invariably take a thousand milligrams of vitamin C, right? Because they know that's going to help them. It certainly couldn't hurt. But the fact is, is you'd have to eat. Uh, eight cantaloupes to get 1,000 milligrams of vitamin C. You'd have to eat 14 oranges to get eat uh, to get one uh, 1,000 milligrams of vitamin C. And you know you never would do that naturally. Your body, your, your stomach is only so big for a reason, and you don't want to sort of exceed your level of society satiety, which you're doing when you take these these things. I, I go through this that vitamin C. There's more than four dozen studies showing that vitamin C does not treat or prevent colds, but it doesn't matter. This has just become part of the culture. It's just uh, uh, sort of uh, we're unal- we're alloyed to this notion, no matter how many studies show that we're, we're wrong. What's the story of the study or studies that convinced us that it was right? Well, it, it really was never a study. It was Linus Pauling. I mean, Linus Pauling won two Nobel, Pri- Nobel Prizes, one for chemistry, the other for peace. And uh, he just believed that in the way that one holds a religious belief that vitamin C not only treated colds, but treated or prevented cancer or, or cured all ills. I mean, his first book was Vitamin C and the, and the Common Cold. And then the second, the later books were that vitamin C pretty much could treat everything. He had a, a big platform. You assume that someone who's won two Nobel Prizes knows what they're talking about. And he just believe this to be true, even though the data clearly showed he wasn't true, which is interesting. It's like Nobel Prize disease. There's a number of people who win Nobel Prizes when they get older, have these fixed beliefs that are that are counter to the uh, data and yet hold the, those beliefs anyway. Yeah, I don't want to malign the wrong one, but either Watson or Crick definitely falls into that camp. Right. It was Watson. Um, and, and the fa- fascinating thing with Pauling, I believe the only person to have two Nobel Prizes, yet we're all taking his, his advice in a field he doesn't have a Nobel Prize in or even any schooling in, which is which is medicine. They give a Nobel Prize for medicine. 
Right. But I think you assume that it's just a level of intelligence that sort of crosses all fields, which I think is what he assumed. I mean, he's a guy who, who yeah. sort of fought the good fight. I think no one or people uh, didn't necessarily believe his sort of alpha helix model when he first started and, and the, the, the sort of his secondary and tertiary structures of proteins. And, he, you know, and so he, he sort of bucked the trend and ended up being right and wins the Nobel Prize. And when you do that, I think you believe that you're always bucking the trend and always going to be right even when you're not. That's interesting. What's the story with vitamin D? How did that get into our consciousness? To the point where doctors today are still telling their kid, their uh, pediatricians today, I love my pediatrician and she's great, but she did tell my child to take a lot more vitamin D. And when I said why, you know, she explained essentially what the, um, I don't know if it's conventional wisdom, but the wisdom that you're trying to debunk is. And I came back at her with, you know, if it were the case that the body needs vitamin D, how could we have even evolved to this point? How could there be this sudden deficiency? And she said it would have something to do with we used to be outside a lot more. So maybe that held a little more water. But to go back to my original question, how did the idea about vitamin D get into our consciousness? I think it was a few things. I think one is that if you looked at people who lived closer to the equator, meaning had a greater amount of sunlight during the day than those who lived more distant to the equator, um, that was number one. So people thought, okay, so what does sunlight offer you? Sunlight offers you the ability to create vitamin D for, from, from your skin, which is what we do. We essentially make our own vitamin D. Um, and then the, the second piece of the evidence was the, the so-called ecological studies. That if you looked at people who took vitamin D as, and compared them to those who didn't, um, that those who took vitamin D seemed to be better. They did better. Of course, they also were less likely to smoke and they were more likely to exercise. And they did other things that also put them in a healthier position. And it wasn't until really did, you did the right kind of studies, the randomized, prospective, controlled studies, where the person didn't decide whether to take the vitamin D, the investigator did. So people were given the vitamin D or weren't, that you then found that it didn't do all the things that it was claimed to do. And I think the other thing that, that was really the surprise in the vitamin D chapter was that, that uh, groups like Quest and LabCorp, when they list 20 to 30 as a, a, a number in which that if, if that's your level of vitamin D, um, it's listed as, as potentially insufficient. That's not true. Anything over 20 is sufficient. Endocrinological association after endocrinological association has weighed in on this. And I think we've been fooled by these the sort of false laboratory results. Uh, which were generated really by one guy. There was one guy um, uh, whose name is mentioned in this book who sort, of, who, who sort of has created what I consider to be the great hoax of vitamin D. I mean, 98% of people in this country don't need supplemental vitamin D, yet roughly one-third of people in this country take it. It's probably the most popular of the dietary supplements. Now, there is one guy who shows up in this book over and over again and not on the right side of medicine, and that's Dr. Oz. Here's my question about Dr. Oz. It's not as if there's a broad panoply of medical experts and he's an outlier or even he has, you know, significant followers. But in general, there are other celebrity doctors who are peddling correct cures. He's by far and away the most famous doctor. And maybe the second most famous doctor is not even a medical doctor like Dr. Phil. What, what does that tell you about the problem we're up against. Right. I mean, here's a guy who's, it's hard to call him an embracer of alternative medicine when he's trained classically in medicine. He's a cardiovascular surgeon. He holds people's hearts in their in his hands and fixes them. I mean, you know, so he is as as mainstream as you get in the world of medicine. But some, somewhere in there, he got seduced into this sort of more alternative track. It made him very popular. And I think it's sort of hard to, um, to ignore the light. I think, you know, Oprah kind of launched him. And once he was launched, 
launched. He he just did the kinds of things that one does to try and make popular and be popular. In other words, here's the magic pill that makes your hair thicker. Here's the magic pill that, that makes you have better sex, et cetera, et cetera. And I just, it was hard to watch. He's obviously a very smart guy and, and he obviously was successful in terms of being a cardiovascular surgeon, but something happened there where um, I think his popularity ended up sort of trumping what I think would have been more reasonable uh, positions that were met backed by science. How often in your own practice do some of these ideas present themselves? You have patients who insist on taking these supplements or argue with you about what the real medicine is? All the time. I think that the, the General Nutrition Center is is excellent at selling itself as a, a product that we have these products, and there's probably 85,000 or so in the market, that, that, that make you better, that, that, you know, restore joint health or prostate health or heart health or boost your immune system or boost energy, and there's no downside. Now, that's true of nothing in medicine. I mean, anything in medicine, that any medicine that has a positive effect can have a negative effect. That's also true with these supplements. The thing is, though, if they were, if they happen to be held to a, a standard of safety and efficacy by the Food and Drug Administration, they would pretty much all be off the market because they can't really make a specific claim. I mean, so for example, yeah. if, so, if, what, if what product says supports prostate health, I mean, they, what they can't say is they can't say, say, shrinks your prostate or, you know, because that's a specific uh, claim. So they have this, these vague or sort of general kind of wink and nod claims. I don't know. There, it seems a little bit baked into human nature that we're going to fall for some of these false claims. Also, it seems baked into science that science evolves and what we thought was good might not be good or in the levels that we thought they were good. So I'll allow for mistakes to be made. But how big a risk is this? How, if, if all of this um, incorrect thinking were eliminated, how much less business would you get, let's say? Right. I think the, well, I'm, so I'm a pediatrician and um, pediatric infectious disease expert. I guess that where this inter intersects with my work is in two ways. One is, is treating fever. I think that, you know, we all make fever. Everything that walks, flies, crawls, or swims on the face of this earth can make fever. Why? Why are we willing to pay that sort of uh, increased cost of energy and increased metabolic costs to have fever? It certainly makes us uncomfortable. I mean, you shiver, you know, you have a headache, you have muscle pain. We all make fever and we do it for a reason. And as it's been studied, shown in study after study, your immune system works better at a higher temperature. I mean, it, it's been, and so therefore, if you look at studies where people are given these anti-fever medicines as compared to those who aren't, those who are given anti-fever medicines generally have, have diseases that last longer. Probably the, the, the best example was in my world was in children with chickenpox. If you treated uh, children with chickenpox with Tylenol or didn't treat them, those who were treated with Tylenol had a longer time of illness, had a longer time until those blisters on their skin crusted and did worse. And because they, what they did at some level was they crippled their immune system by giving giving this, this, these, these uh, anti-fever medicines. And I'll give you a specific example because it just happened in our hospital not too long ago. There was a boy who played, was a soccer player. He was hit with a soccer ball on his hip. And as a consequence, he got an infection in the vein around his hip, so-called septic thrombophlebitis. The bacteria that infected that vein was called MRSA, methicillin-resistant staphylococcus, which is a bad bug. I mean, it's hard to treat that bug. So now it's in his bloodstream, right? Because it's in the vein. So the, the, the bacteria traveled to his lungs and caused lung abscesses. It traveled to his brain and caused brain abscesses. It traveled to his bones and caused ab abscesses there. It traveled to his joints and caused abs caused abscesses. He was sick. 
He's about a 15-year-old boy. And every day we treated him with the medicine, vancomycin, that was in an attempt to eliminate the bacteria from his bloodstream. And every day he had bacteria in his bloodstream. And every day we treated him around the clock with anti-fever medicines because he had high fever. Finally, we walked in there after two weeks of this and said, let's stop giving him these anti-fever medicines. Let's do that. If you can stand it, and the boy was brave and the parents were game, let's, and the nurses were game, let's do this. And we stopped treating him with anti-fever medicines. And within a day and a half, the bacteria disappeared from his bloodstream. Now, maybe that would have happened anyway, but you certainly couldn't convince the parents of that or us of that, frankly, that we had finally allowed his, his, the fever to do what it normally does. Your, your white blood cells work better at a higher temperature. It kills bacteria better at a higher temperature. So stop crippling your immune response by treating fever. So do you have a rule of thumb when fever is below 102, try not to treat it, let's say? There, there is a physiological fever, meaning the fever that you make yourself can hurt you. Environmental fevers can hurt you. So there's this false notion that the fever can be so high that it can, you know, say, damage your brain. That's not true. Physiological fevers, fevers you make don't do that. But if the fever does get high in a non-heat stroke situation, um, it's... Sh- it, it at least is an indication that something's going on and you should get medical attention, right? Definitely, sure. You should, especially depend, depending on what the other symptoms are, sure. But the fever, the fever is there for you. Do you have kids? I do. We have two kids. What uh, strategies did you use with, do you use with their fevers? We never treated their fever. We never, they were uh-huh. both in their 20s. They both, you know, are alive and, and working. <laughs> so, so they survived us. Um, what about, do you tell anyone to take a multivitamin, any supplements? No. Uh, I think, again, it just makes for a lot of expensive urine. I mean, eat as well as you can. But even if you don't eat well, there are so many foods that are supplemented with all the vitamins that you need. I mean, how many people with scurvy do you know or rickets? You know, we just uh, we, we supplement things to the extent that it's very hard to, uh, to avoid getting what you need. Well, now that you got the recommended dose of vitamin D or testosterone, which is to say none, let us move on to the coronavirus. And I think you will find this interesting. On tomorrow's show, we will talk to Dr. Offit again because he was an early voice who I heard talking about the virus and he admits he got a lot of things wrong. But why he got it wrong and why he knows to admit it, that's the interesting thing. It'll be a very gentle gotcha, if a gotcha at all. And that'll be on tomorrow's Gist with Paul Offit. And now the spiel. Alison Roman, one time and possibly, though not surely, future food writer for the New York Times, is in the insensitivity penalty box. Oh, man, I hope I'm not appropriating traditions from the Canadians. As Business Insider described her, quote, Roman published recipes biweekly in the paper and is arguably best known for viral recipes like the stew. Can we just cool it right now on the viral phraseology? Okay, especially with my food. Roman was beloved in certain sectors for her recipes, but also her personality, which can be described as hashtag no fucks given. And yet, fucks were thrust upon her. As in, what the fuck? After she made the following comment to a site called New Consumer. Question. There's a fine line between consumption and pollution, right? Answer, Alison Roman. I think that's why I really enjoy what I do, because you're making something, but it goes away. Like the idea that when Marie Kondo decided to capitalize on her fame and make stuff that you can buy that is completely antithetical to everything she's ever taught you, I'm like, damn, bitch, you fucking just sold out immediately. Someone's like, you should make stuff. And she's like, okay, slap my name on it. I don't give a shit. For the low, low price of $19.99, please to buy my cutting board. Like, no. 
And then she said of Chrissy Teigen, like what Chrissy Teigen has done is so crazy to me. She had a successful cookbook. Then it was like, boom, line of target. Boom. Now she has an Instagram page that has over a million followers where it's just like people running a content farm for her. That horrifies me. And it's not something that I ever want to do. Oh, oh, no. Did you notice the two women in question who she cited? Well, it turns out they have something in common. Neither is married to John Legend. Wait, I'm being told one is. Okay, it's that they both are Asian, or at least have Asian heritage. They're both at least 50% Asian, Marie Kondo Japanese, Chrissy Teigen, Norwegian, and Thai. But it was enough to start a fire, an online roasting, a media stewing, a simmering of discontent, and a filleting of Alison Roman. She issued a lengthy, lengthy apology last week. I will quote from her essay. I have sinned against you, my Lord. Sorry, wrong clip. But she did give out her personal email address and said she would personally read everyone who wrote in wanting to express their scorn and condemnation. This for singling out two Asian women from countries 2,500 miles apart, which, by the way, is also the distance from France to Nigeria. Also, let's just note that Marie Kondo has never been anything but the dominant ethnicity in her country, which is the third largest economy in the world. But that doesn't mean you could just lump her in with Chrissy Teigen and expect to skate. By skate, I mean the verb, not the fish. Today, the Times announced they were not publishing Roman's column that was to run because the transgression, it was just too severe. Now, I don't have much more insight than I've just offered. I've not done the work. I've not really taken the advanced levels of diversity training. You know, I try to check my privilege, but I live in a system of white supremacy, which clearly says not responsible for checked items. I know that. It either is or isn't my story to tell, depending on whichever is the less offensive framing today. But what I can do is this. I can offer my services. And what I will offer is that I will be a consultant to any cheeky devil-may-care public figure who thinks to do an interview. And should that figure ever refer disparagingly or mildly disparagingly or mildly but somewhat accurately disparagingly to two extremely successful people of the same ethnicity, I will quickly jump in and suggest a third party to also mention to hopefully lighten the offense. In fact, I know this is going to be so popular. I can't be there for everyone personally. What I've done is I've invented an app-based algorithm which anyone can use so as to broaden the array of brushes one paints with. Here's how it works. Let's say I was saying, well, Chrissy Teigen and Marie Kondo both make a lot of money on merch. You may wish, you may wish to instead reference Rachel Ray. Cool, right? Or, uh, well, you know, a lot of powerful men have been caught up in Me Too. Guys like uh, Cuba Gooding Jr. or Russell Simmons. You may wish to instead reference Dustin Hoffman. See? See how that works? Let's try another one. I don't know. I'm not so into the new kind of country music like Darius Rucker or Lil Nas X. You may wish to instead reference literally every other country singer. You could even change the settings when you're unwittingly stereotypical in ways you couldn't possibly realize. You know, I'll tell you something. When there is a great actor, I will watch any project he or she is in, like James Gandolfini, or right now, I love Sarah Paulson. 
you may wish to include non-lisping actor Patrick Stewart. Oh, oh, see, I didn't even realize. I didn't even realize that. It's the diversity reversifier 2000. It's the woke friend you always needed, but who for certain reasons would not be friends with you. It's a great gift for adult children to give their older parents. Or I guess you could just try to be a positive person, though even there, you know, Chrissy Teigen, she's compelling, charismatic, and funny, charming, so many great attributes. And Marie Kondo, she's really helped hundreds of thousands of people, made us more mindful. Why not hold them both up for praise? Wait, wait, wait. what I do wrong this time? You may wish to upgrade now for Model Minority Alerts 299. Well, thanks, Diversity Reversifier. Man, is there anything these clever Israelis can't invent? And that's it for today's show. Margaret Kelly is the associate producer of The Gist. She always believed feed a fever, starve a cold, but it should be ignore a fever, give a cold the silent treatment until it shows it's mature enough to be included in this family. Daniel Schrader, Gist producer, has done extensive family trees on poisons Brett Michaels and Flava Flav and contends that the scrapped Enrique Iglesias Salsa of Love franchise would have been superior to both Rock of Love and Flava of Love. The Gist. You can't cancel what you never subscribe to. Um peru de peru du peru, and thanks for listening.